0: Welcome to this edition of the Storycraft Cafe podcast. I'm your host Hank Garner. Today we've got a fantastic show. My guest is Josh Hayes, uh, an old friend of mine from the writer community, but one of the very best and 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 a very successful author in the military science fiction space we talk all about how he got started in military sci-fi what it is that he enjoys about writing that genre but also you know how he desires to write in other genres and we talk a little bit about you know how you stretch from one genre to another and you know hopefully. Bring your reading audience over with you. Before we get over to Josh, uh, let's hear from Ellie Griffiths, who talks uh, with me about creating a pen name. Why she felt like she needed to create a pen name to separate one uh, bit of work that she was doing from the other uh, bit, and uh, you know, hopefully that uh, you can pick up something there from Ellie's journey and uh, and how she decided to segment what she does we've uh we've got some changes coming to the podcast in the next few weeks uh stick around with us we're going to try some format changes i think you're really going to like what we're going to do uh but just bear with us
1: so i i wrote four books um as domenica de rosa and they were all kind of about Italy, family, relationships, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, but then I, I had an idea for a different sort of book and it was gonna be about archeology. span And the reason for that is that my husband, Andy, had, had a career change. So when I met him, he was a lawyer. And I actually met him in, in a city wine bar. If you can imagine in London, he was there with all his lawyer friends and I was there with my publishing friends. And I remember at some point in the evening, he said, oh, you know, I, I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet. Um, so we got married. Um, and, then, and then when we, we were married and we had two young children, he said, oh, do you remember that thing about being an archaeologist? I'd kind of like to do it now. Um, and it did seem a bit less sweet, I can tell you. So um, Andy <laughs> went back to he went back to university and he studied archaeology and. Um, It it became an interest for both of us. And one day we were walking across uh, Titchwell Marsh, which is a marshland on the North Norfolk coast there with our young children. Because, you know, when he went back to university, we couldn't afford, you know, those lovely Tuscan holidays before that inspired (laughs) my Italy book. So we went back to Norfolk. And the reason why we went to Norfolk was because my aunt lives there. And uh, I'd always spent a lot of time with my aunt when I was a child and she has a boat, which is on the Norfolk broads on the rivers there. So we, we went back to having those sort of holidays with her. Um, And Andy and I were walking across Titchwell Marsh um, and Andy happened to say that prehistoric people had thought that marshland was sacred because it's neither land nor sea, but something in between. Uh, They thought of it as a bridge to the afterlife. Neither land nor sea, neither life nor death, you know, like a a liminal zone, an in-between place. Um, Right. And as soon as he said... In
0: the same way that that they held... uh, uh, dawn and sunset is sacred because it's the, the time between times it's, it's yes. fully day not fully night
1: <laughs> yes exactly and of course we're talking on the summer solstice aren't we on the right yes of- we are <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly the day to talk about this but right. yes exactly it's this whole idea of the landscape itself kind of being sacred and special um and as soon as he said that, that this idea for, for a book came into my head and I did sort of see, I'm, I'm sorry to say this because it sounds so sort of cliche, but I did sort of see Dr. Ruth Galloway walking towards me out of the mist, you know. I, I sort of felt I knew everything about her, you know, just where she'd been to school, where she'd been to college, who her friends were. Um, and, and I wrote The Crossing Places sort of quite quickly and showed it to my agent. And she said, oh, she said, oh, this is crime. You need a crime name so uh, i became ellie griffiths almost on the spur of the moment but it was my grandmother's name she was ellen griffiths and i think i don't know why we picked we decided on ellie i think it just looked a bit tidier on the book covers but so you know i became i became ellie griffiths from that moment on really
0: and we are live here in the storycraft cafe thanks for joining us again Uh, i'm your host as always hank garner today i'm thrilled to have uh one of my my best friends in the, in the writing space, Josh Hayes. We've known each other for a long time. Um, we don't get to hang out as much as we used to, but uh, but we're gonna try to fix that uh, soon. Josh, uh, military sci-fi is, is kind of uh, his wheelhouse at the moment, but I have a feeling that Josh is gonna tell us how uh, he has designs to stretch those boundaries one day. Welcome to the show, Josh.
2: But it's true. Hey, thanks so much, man. Uh, I was telling you before, I absolutely love chatting with you and uh, it's been way too long since we've had an opportunity to sit down and, and uh, shoot the writing stuff as it were. So thank right. you very much for inviting me
0: back on. Absolutely. Um, Josh, it, th- there's, there's a uh, a fun question that I've been asking a lot of people as we start shows lately. And um, I, I just have a feeling that you've got a good answer for it. Um, what is a piece of writing advice that someone has given you that has stuck with you? Now, it could have stuck with you because this is sage advice that is just amazing and you're so happy someone shared it with you, or maybe it's so terrible that you can't help but look back on it. And you, that's the same exact facial expression that everybody has because everybody's gotten horrible advice from somebody. So to, good or bad or both doesn't matter.
2: Um, man, that's a super good question and <laughs> not a softball to start the interview. So uh, uh, good on you. Good on you, um, man terrible writing advice is so easy to come across like yes. the 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 bad writing advice seems to overwhelm the good and um, you know there's so many people out there peddling the next best thing or if you do this you'll be a successful writer it's just so many of that stuff it really just makes me want to ban, bang my face in my keyboard and and uh <laughs> good writing advice though is is really hard to come across and it's more than not more often than not it's extremely subjective to who you're talking to and one of the things i've noticed uh from doing i mean we're in season 7 of keystroke right now nice. uh, so uh, just about 7 years of doing that show one of the things i noticed is every piece of advice is from every author is different. Um, But I would say for me personally, the best piece of advice that I could get from anyone that I've stuck with me is to read more, read a wider spectrum of fiction than you write. Um, And that seems very simplistic, but Like I write mill sci-fi and for the longest time, all I read was mill sci-fi. Right. Um, And so you get, you know, a, a, just a steady stream of identical concepts and identical themes. And it's good if you're just starting out and you're trying to understand the tropes or the stereotypes that you do and don't want to hit. Right. But as you get farther on, a lot of that stuff becomes more intuitive than not. And if you're not reading outside of your genre, you're missing a lot of things that you can bring into your writing that would make it stand out or make it better. Um, the biggest uh, example of that, that I can think of off the top of my head is um, I recently, this last, uh, well, I read the books last year um, in 2021. Um, uh the series called the gray man series, which actually just came out on Netflix as a movie. Um, yeah. and the, the movie as it always happens is nothing like the books. Um, but the books as a study in craft are phenomenal books and the writing yeah. is spectacular. And the way that he writes, uh, Mark Graney is the author, the way that he writes uh, narrative action, um, phenomenal, superb. And uh, I have taken a lot of what, how he writes that and incorporated that into how I write action narrative. And I, had I not, those are modern day thrillers. Um, yeah. and so had I not gone into that genre or, or found those books, a lot of that stuff I would not have found. And so I guess that's a long-winded answer of me saying read outside your genre because there are a lot of things that you will pick up through style and through just different storytelling methods that will and can improve you as a writer.
0: That's fantastic advice. Um, Have you read Mark Graney's new book, Armored? So actually, I've got the
2: signed uh hardback nice. Sorry for going out of frame and I've also yes. got the signed hardback of oh, his latest Sierra yeah. 6. I'm a huge Granny fan. I have not so this is interesting. I have not read this one because I listened to the audio drama before this came out. Yeah. And it's it's basically the exact same story. This is obviously just expanded in novel format. The audio drama was outstanding. Yeah. Um. And I, I've only listened to a couple of those. Like, there was one that they did for Aliens, um, a couple of years ago. That was basically like the sequel to the second Aliens movie, and they just did away with Alien Three, um, which was great. Yeah, as they do. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because everybody hates Alien Three, but that was my favorite one besides the second one, just because I liked David Fincher's directing, um. But yeah, I, we go around and around of that uh, way better than alien resurrection. That's for sure. We
0: had, uh, 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 we had Mark Graney on the show last week and, uh, Oh, cool. Uh, talking about armored and, um, my, my son Ian is, is waving as he comes by to pick up my other son. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, uh, yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal writer. And the, the audio drama, I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, Audio dramas don't always work, you know. You look at right. some, and who's the company? I'm I'm blanking right now. That does mostly audio dramas. Their tagline is like a movie in your head. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I've heard. Uh, of that. Graphic audio? Is that what I'm? Thinking? Oh, maybe. Graphic, yeah, maybe. They, they do a lot of fantasy but And you you look at um, there's a there's a cast of like 30 actors, and you're like, this is going to be amazing, and not always. Um, Yeah. Sometimes a book just needs to be read the way the author wrote it. Um, You know, there's a narrative style that that's why novels are different than, than screenplays or or stage plays, you know? Um, But yeah, that one, that was a phenomenal interpretation for sure.
2: I, uh, I read. uh, So the audio drama, the the armored audio drama is really good. And one of the things that I found um, as a as an author reading and a lot of times like you, it's like uh, you're watching a movie or you're watching a TV series. And as a writer, you're picking out the things that they're doing and more often than not, it's the things that they're doing wrong. (laughs) And you're like, Oh, that's so dumb. Uh, But in this book, there's a lot of like um, the antithesis of show don't tell. And in, in the, in the audio drama, they have to do exactly the opposite because you can't show What's happening? You have to tell. So, for instance, there's a scene, and I, I found it very jarring at first. But as I got about a quarter of the way into the book, I realized what was happening and why it was happening, and it made sense. Is that everything that happens in the audio drama happens through dialogue? There is no narrative, right? And so it's just like watching a movie, except you can't see it. Right, and. Uh, So there's gunshots and there's explosions and there's car sounds and all this other stuff. And, you know, there would be a scene where the, the, the main character has to go from the back passenger to the driver's seat. And he says in dialogue, hold on, let me get behind the wheel. I'll climb into the seat, get down and then I'll drive. And there's stuff like that. that happens through the book that you're like, okay, I get what you're doing. You're setting the scene for the listener and you're doing it through dialogue. And had it been a movie, you wouldn't have needed that line, but right. because it, you're listening to it, you needed it. And so I can see why a lot of people would be turned off by that, but it made sense. Oh, my camera's kinda There we go. It made sense in the thing. Yeah. And I, I really, after I got used to it, I really
0: enjoyed it. Um, You mentioned earlier that you're in season seven of keystroke medium uh for the folks listening who don't know what keystroke medium is g- give give people the elevator pitch for your show that you do
2: uh our the elevator this ele- elevator pitch is very simple if my camera will fo- why is the camera not focusing it's gonna bug the <laughs> crap out of me and i'm sorry for waving it's my hand good. in front of the camera like a crazy. The, the elevator pitch for Keystroke is basically a couple of guys hanging out in a bar drinking beer talking about writing. Um, and it's evolved obviously over time. Uh, we started with one show and then at one time we had like Five shows, um, and I think now we're back down to two, sometimes three. It kind of depends. We're kind of like on a hiatus year this year. Um, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Um, Kayleen and Lauren have a lot of work, uh, editing now, and uh, Scott got a, a new position at his job, and so we're still kind of working around trying to figure out what's best for the company yeah. and what's best for that but it's a it's a writer centric podcast we talk about story we talk about you know writing uh different aspects last week we had ne- neil asher on talking about uh, his writing life and his uh you know just everything that he's doing he was of course he had two short stories in uh, Lef- love death and robots the yeah. uh, netflix anthology and that's just a, it's if you're a writer and you want or you're looking for a couple of guys that really have absolutely no idea what they're doing, but you want like they're your people. You can come. Yeah. like I always tell people we did it com- extremely backwards. And you know this. I've, we've talked about it before. Like, yeah. for instance, Larry Korea, he has a podcast now. Well, he didn't have a podcast before he was famous. He got famous and then started a podcast. Right. We right. did it exactly the opposite and nobody knew who we were. We were like, Hey, come hang out with us. And, uh, uh so, and we, it's still, but nobody knows, still doesn't know who we are. Um, but it's, it's fun to still hang out and talk.
0: Well, you know, I, um, I got into podcasting and I've, I've told this story a million times because I, um, I wanted to, to be a writer and I, I was already a writer, but I wanted to be a better writer than right. I was. And and because I had a history in radio and I, I kind of knew, you know, how to do the thing. And the best way that I could figure out to be better at what I do is to hang out with other people that were good. And then just hopefully by osmosis and by building relationships with these people, you become better because you hang out with better people. You know, it's yeah. kind of like mom always told you, you know, if you'd hang out with a better class of friends, you wouldn't get in so much trouble. you know <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know so um did, did you have those those kinds of ideas when you started podcasting like where were you in your writing life when you started keystroke medium
2: uh i barely had begun um what's interesting with the start of keystroke medium is it's not only did we do it backwards but we it was almost an accident um i had wanted to do a podcast for the, uh, the longest time uh, I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know yeah. how I was going to present it. And Scott and I, uh, Scott Moon, uh, who lives here with in town, and um, we both had the same job. And I thought you were um, gonna say
0: lives here with me and I he's, yeah, in the basement he's, where, where he's over
2: that? there. <laughs> he's actually he lives within spitting distance, right behind me now in, in some oh, apartments. Right. And he's building a house that's a mile away from me over there. And once his house gets built, it's gonna be you ever that guy that like taps on windows like outside the <laughs> bedroom and <laughs> hey, like
0: hey,
2: that's gonna be me. Um but so we want to tell stories. <laughs> yeah,
0: can Scott come out and play?
2: Um <laughs> So we, we used to meet weekly uh, yeah. and drink coffee and just talk about riding. And then one day I couldn't. I had all four of my kids and I couldn't get out of the house. And my wife was working and I was like, why don't we just like have a Skype call or a, a whatever it was at the time? I don't remember. Yeah. And um, so we did. And we ended up talking for a while and we did that several weeks in a row. And then the idea of the podcast came back to me and I was like, I, I still want to do this podcast deal. And I said, well, we're talking about writing anyway. Why don't we just record our conversation? And so I I pitched it to him and I was like, we don't have to do anything special. And we didn't, um, (laughs) which is also the wrong thing to do. Uh, I was like, let's just record our conversations and we'll throw them up on the internet and uh, we'll see where it goes. And that's what we did. And the, the idea of doing it live was really just because I didn't want to edit it afterward. I wanted to just be done with it and hit record and then
0: leave it, and then and that's just how we've been doing it ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Did uh, did your writing and publishing life uh, coincide with the launch of Keystroke? Like, when did you? published that first uh i think it was a, a novella was that the first thing that you published it was
2: and it's not available anymore um but it it was a a novella called my heart because i yeah, love that book. yeah it's uh well so i the the first second star series
0: is what we're yes talking about.
2: yeah second second star is the first thing the first big project that i i wrote and published myself um uh I started that back in like 2011, 2012 ish. And basically it was a science fiction reimagining of Peter Pan and yeah. fun story. Great story. And actually when I watched, when Arcane came out earlier this year and I watched it, I was like, this is exactly what I wanted second star to look like. <laughs> and these people stole it from me, but whatever. <laughs> um, it, it was a fun story. I published that and right around the same, t- same time I published that is when we started doing the podcast. Well, what happened with uh, you know, the podcast is everybody asked me all the time, and I don't know if you get the same question too, is do you make money off your podcast? How much money do you make on your podcast? And everybody thinks Joe Rogan millionaire when you think of podcaster. And I'm like, right. oh, I don't make any money off the podcast, but what I did make was a lot of opportunities. Yes. And uh, I met Richard Fox. I met Nick, uh, Nick Cole and Jason Onspock. I met Steve Bollier, a whole bunch of people that now are really close friends Um, that I have manipulated is not the right word, uh, coerced maybe into, uh, giving me money for book projects. And that has made me a lot of money. Um, and my, my writing career would not be what it is today without keystroke medium. 100%. There's no argument there. I would not have, I would be maybe a quarter of the writer today without keystroke.
0: Yeah, I one hundred percent. The relationship return uh, is 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 more than than any monetary compensation could. Like, right, it, it, you just can't even put them in the same ballpark. Yeah, because we are uh, kind of our overarching theme today is finding your niche and where you fit in the publishing world. Um, that that first series, the second star series that we talked about. Yeah, is different from the stuff that you're writing and publishing today. There, there was a uh, a different feel, a, a different subgenre, uh, yeah, if you will. There, there, were a lot of similarities. Like I could, I could tell where you were going as a writer, but next to what you're publishing now, they're they're a little <laughs> different. Um, yeah, what talk a little bit about finding um, the sweet spot of what you enjoy. Versus what makes money, because that that is a, a concept that that a lot of writers wrestle with, and finding the thing that you can be successful at, however you define that, is right. very difficult for a lot of people.
2: Well, it's interesting because you know um, you could look at becoming a writer. Uh, becoming a writer is not like just picking a career. You know, uh, you yeah. know, you look at whatever, the, the wide spectrum of opportunity that's available in the world for career-wise. And you're like, which one makes the most money? I'm going to go do that. But you right. can't do that because maybe you don't have the skills to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. You always... There's 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 the opportunity to go and do a thing, but whether or not you can do it uh, physically, mentally, that kind of thing, those all play a part. And I think the same thing happens in writing too. Not to that extent, because I think if you really wanted to, you could probably write anything as long as you intuitively are a good writer. But there are certain genres, like I would be a horrible romance author. I could not go and do that, even though that's where 90% of the money is made. (laughs) Like everybody that makes millions of dollars in the indie community, there's a lot of them that are romance authors. Um, That's what your wife said. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I, I grew up reading Science fiction. I grew up reading David yeah. Weber and uh, you know Peter F Hamilton and, and and all those guys. And can I
0: interrupt you for just a second? You've yeah. gotten to be pretty good friends with David Weber over the years, haven't you?
2: Yeah, yeah. We're we're uh, we exchange messages. Yeah, he called me out of the That's blue insane. a couple of months ago. Yeah, it's great. By, by
0: the way, you know, just as a kid growing up reading science fiction, you know, starting this you know podcast allowed you to 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 meet one of your heroes. That that is.
2: 100 and he he, uh, blurbed my book he blurbed uh, edge of valor he read it uh gave me phenomenal feedback on it and now his blurb is on the cover of my book and like i crazy i could never have seen that uh coming you know what i mean like yeah um and he's been on the show several times he loves coming on the show and those are some of the longest shows we have on record because if you've ever talked to david he'd He's he's not a short speaker. He he can he's speak. got things to say. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so I you know uh, I I I came to writing science fiction very naturally, and yeah. um I wrote uh, the first. So the first thing I wrote after Second Star. Second Star never was never finished. I actually outlined the last book, and I know how the story ends. But right around that time is when I uh, hooked up with Richard Fox. Um, who had was in the middle of writing The Ember War. I think he had finished book six or seven or something like that. And I had had him on the show. I think he was like the fifth guest on Keystroke. And um, he messaged Scott and I and was like, Hey, I'm looking to do some other uh, projects in the Emberverse. If you guys could pick something. And he gave us kind of a list of you know, scenarios, would you want to write one? And I was like, I'm there. I am there. And so second star got put on the back burner and, um, wrote Terra Nova, uh, was exceptionally well received by his audience and by fans all the way around. We had a phenomenal launch. Um, it's still one of the most, uh, the most well-received series I've ever written. Um, Uh, And of course, I wrote Strikers War with Nick and Jason in the Galaxy's Edge universe. Um, That book is the single most successful book I've ever written uh, because it was a one off book, but I've made the most money off of that book than I have all the other ones. Um, and then I wrote the Valor series and the Valor, e- e- Edge of Valor was a, a book that I planned for six years and it went through a number of iter- iterations before I wrote it. It was my first solo release and that was received really well and the things that I learned writing Terra Nova and Strikers War and even Second Star all went into Edge of Valor and I kind of found my voice in that book and um, that's you know people know me for my mill sci-fi i write um uh really straightforward um not really introspective uh action adventure mill sci-fi it, you know and uh i'm i'm intuitively i know that i'm good at that yeah. um and uh so <laughs> yeah that's 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 where i'm at right now i i that's that's where I have to keep. Uh, you know, I, I retired from the police department in 2019 to write full time, and I'm I'm being moder- I'm I'm moderately successful, um, uh, and so I've got to I've got to keep pounding away at those. I'm working on a series right now called Weaponized, and uh, um, that's basically going. It's it's like a combination of um, the Gray Man or Terminal List um, yeah. with. Uh, Uh, John Wick, but it's in space and uh, it's yeah, so it's going to be fun.
0: Speaking of Richard Fox, um, I maintain a small limited Facebook presence to to uh, see pictures that my kids post and to post memes that frustrate richard fox. <laughs> that's that's my sole purpose for me for being on on facebook is 100%. It, if i get a comment from richard fox that he is extremely frustrated and he's cursing me then i have done my job for that day.
2: Yes. I think yes. any time that you can you can just set him down the road of just fr- frustrated anger it's great right that's great
0: <laughs> oh man um th- how has indie publishing changed uh over oh, the man. 7 years of you doing keystroke medium we've we've seen all kinds of trends come and go um right now we're seeing um we're seeing an interesting time where uh, publishers like Athan, our, our, our very good friends, Steve Bollier, uh, and and Rhett Bruno, are taking things that they've learned from indie publishing and then banding a bunch of authors together and resources. And then, you know, um, publishing alongside the big guys while maintaining an indie attitude. Um, yeah. So- we're seeing several companies doing that now and just doing it phenomenally well. And then you, you've got guys like Richard Fox, you know, who's a, a heavy hitter uh, in the indie space, but also is, uh, I think he's doing a book with Bane now. Yep. I think.
2: He's, he's doing a couple with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've got Nick and Jason that you mentioned with, with you know, Galaxy's Edge and, you know, that the whole cottage industry that's built up around that whole project. Um how do you see the landscape these days and looking back, you know, from those, the indie gold rush as it was when, when we first started to, yeah, you now it's, uh, you leave you a little swimmy headed.
2: It's, um, it's very interesting. There's, I think there's a couple of things that are happening in storytelling as a whole, um, I, I made a note so I can touch on it after I answer your question because I think it's okay. an interesting uh, an interesting comment. But uh, indie indie is is interesting. Like you said, back when it first started the, in the golden age, a lot of people made a lot of money, and you don't see right. those people anywhere anymore. Nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and whether or not that's because they they just made all their money and dipped or they fig- the readers figured out that they weren't very good authors and right. they just slided, slid slid a- a- away back to obscurity or whatever. Um it's interesting both. Yeah, I, uh it's interesting because Fundamentally, things have shifted, especially on Amazon, where you know you used to be able to do a free book, and that would skyrocket your book up the the right. the, the charts, and then you would slap it back to two ninety nine and make a crap ton of money because it was still rising the charts. And right. they changed that, and then ninety nine cents became the new free, and now people aren't doing that anymore. But if they are doing it, it's for a specific reason, and there's a whole bunch of things happening, and I think one of the interesting things that I have started seeing is the shift f- back from quantity to quality. Um, and that's something that I have tried very hard to be a, a proponent of is the quality. And for a while there uh, for the longest time, I mean, two, three, four years, I mean, just dozens and dozens and dozens of books coming out that were in my opinion, half assed books and not written yeah. well, and um, we're just taking advantage of uh, the market. And okay, right. rightfully so. Okay, fine, you made money, but I think now that eBooks as a as a thing is really becoming mainstream. More, it's becoming right. more of a thing where everyone is doing it. Um, especially in you know, after the pandemic, when stores closed and you couldn't go buy you know, the hardcover books and people were reading the ebooks, there's I think the type of reader is shifting to want to read quality because they don't have time to spend wasting their time reading junk, yeah. Um, and that's not said as a disparage to authors that people don't like their books. I'm just saying in general, people are are making, I think the, the shift to well-written quality books that treat their audience as intelligent people rather than dummies. And uh, that is a huge shift to me. Um, and I think um, writers that are taking advantage of that, are going to do very well in the long term because they're you give books more re-readability.
0: If that makes sense, absolutely. Um, ben Stevens said, "Audio books too." Um, oh yeah, true. Audio books are a huge growth market around the the biggest growth market in in publishing right now. I agree. Um, Audio books are nothing new though. Uh, you know, you can go books on tape go. Back to the 80s, probably. I I, I don't know exactly, but they've been around a long time. Um, Why do you think this sudden boom, and and when I say sudden, you know, the last five years or so have just been a a steady growth trajectory. Uh, Why do you think that is? What's going on that?
2: Well, I think there's there's three main reasons for that. And I've been listening to audiobooks for years. I remember. Same. Um, I think my, one of my first audio, well, that's not true. As a kid, I used to listen to these books on tape or they weren't even books on tape. they were audio dramas on tape called, um, the adventures in Odyssey. And it was a Christian, uh, type program and you had some life lessons or whatever, but it was an audio drama and, and they
0: came in least- with Chris and wit. Yes. Oh, those I- were great stories. I have, I have every cassette Uh, adventures and odyssey from when i worked in radio we played them every afternoon and and i got the collection of i raised my kids on adventures and.
2: oh so they're so great i think my parents still have them and i used you know that we listened to them on car rides and i listened to going to bed and and so i've been no stranger to audio uh at all my whole life um and i listened to the harry potter series on on um cd uh driving in the car or whatever um and so i absolutely love reading through audio and i've been doing it for years and what i think the three main catalysts are for this like you said boom yeah is one the quality has really really gone through the roof uh in terms of you know uh not hearing this when people are reading, or <laughs> you know, breathing—like the small things that really make your auto audio experience better.
0: Those, those things, first two Dresden Files books. Oh man, yeah,
2: it's yeah, it, it, those those, those things are real, and and the quality of narration where. They're shifting the tone of the voice, they're adjusting for character voices. And it's not quite a drama per se, but yeah, they're they they understand how you're listening. And so they're going to give some character voices to um to enhance the experience, as it were. I think the quality is is probably number one. Um the availability, I think, is really uh, a, a significant factor because you can download audio, uh, audio, uh, audible on your phone and you, I can find a book, I can download it in 30 seconds and I'm listening to it. I don't have to go to the store. I don't have to go to the library. I don't need to carry around a Walkman with a headphone and all that stuff. It's just right there. Um, and the second thing is, um, the readers or listeners in this case, um, you know, we talk about attention spans and how people cannot sit and just read, which I think, and I can't do that either. And, uh, you can do, you can just turn it on and do the dishes or do the laundry or you're driving your car and you don't have to stop doing what you're doing in order to enjoy a story. You can just, if I've got to do like if when I on the lawn, I've got big like workman noise canceling headphones that right. I, I, play my audiobook when it takes me an hour to mow the lawn. And so that's an hour I get to listen to my book. And so I think those three things are really, really important. And they're really um, what I think is driving that explosion. And I think the stigma of listening to books is really going the other way. I, I hate the argument where these book reader snobs are, are the... <laughs> you listen to the book <laughs> you didn't read it All and right. i'm like get out of here i i know the story i could repeat to you what the characters say i didn't write it and i saw a comment it was a twitter interaction i don't remember who but they posted the picture on facebook this is just in the last couple of days and the the comment was you know talking about the I can't believe that people still listen to books or whatever and I'm like are you going to talk shit on a blind person who has to use braille to read the right. book? Right. I mean it's just they, they're listening to it or they're using their fingers I'm like you used your fingers to read the book. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> like those t- I don't have time for those people. Like yes, I enjoyed the story listening to it. So go screw yourself. What was it neil
0: gaiman that made the, the yeah thrill? that's what, I, I think i saw that yeah 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 that idiot um right, right. <laughs> exactly 100 i don't even have a, i don't even yeah you know, i can't even expound on that that's just yeah. that's dumb um as an author who who has your uh your works translated to audiobook do you ever think about that in the writing does it ever occur to you like like maybe half of the people that read this book are going to listen to it. Yeah. Um does does it ever factor in for you? It does uh in in in
2: limited ways. Uh for instance, uh, in dialogue. Um I I am a very big proponent of said and asked. Those are typically the only dialogue tags that I use if I'm using that kind of a tag, but I'll also use tags where You know, something stupid. He said something and then he took a drink, right? An action, an action beat instead of the dialogue tag. Um, Because if you're listening to it and every single person says something and then it's he said, she said, he said, she said, he said, she said, that becomes extremely distracting, even though normally you probably wouldn't hear the he said. But if it's every line. Um, that becomes extremely distracting. So when I write right. dialogue, I really look for ways that I can cut he said out or she said, whatever it is, um, or write the dialogue in a way that it flows narratively. So you can maybe use it. If they're in a room, he can lean against a wall or he can you know pick his nose or whatever it is. And you don't have to have those just extremely repetitive dialogue tags. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, I, for instance, I wrote a character in the second Terra Nova book that he was a, a German scientist and I wrote out his dialogue phonetically like, oh, we will explain. <laughs> and Richard got it in my first draft and he was like, absolutely not take all that shit out. Just write the dialogue normal. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but. His accent, he's like write it normal, and I'm like, okay, fine. So I wrote it normal. <laughs> well, then Luke Daniels read it the way that I phonetically wrote it, and I was like, yes, score. Um, but some of that stuff you can't you can't plan for. But uh, yeah. it, when it happens, it 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 really makes the writing it takes on its own thing.
0: That's hilarious. Um, you are. Um kind of known in in the the writing circles as the the outlining guy or you know you you have been true adamant through the years about your outlining process um that's true one of the features in, in in dabble that that uh that we really love is is the plot grid and the um the the tools that we include that help you to imagine your story to to build that roadmap that you write with um have you always been uh, a solid outliner? And if not, when did you start seeing the importance of of kind of understanding the story before jumping in? So, um, yes and no. When I wrote Second Star,
2: I had a very small outline. And yeah. I, honestly, when I wrote Second Star, I was trying to do... When I started the project, I was trying to do what Hugh Howie and Michael Bunker had done with Wool and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they had done is uh, they wrote five, 25 to 30,000 novellas and then published the omnibus after. And, right. And at the time. And got readers hooked along and the got, way. And got readers hooked along the way. Yeah. And they blew up. I mean, I absolutely remember those days. Up. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we had a
0: front row seat for that.
2: Right. I mean, talking about the way things change and that yeah. they are completely different. So when I started that project, I was like, okay, I, I had an idea for every part and I just started writing every part. And part one was like 24,000 and a half words. Nailed it. Uh, part 2 was 45,000 words and then part 3 was 65,000 words and I'm like this is not working out exactly the way I planned it and uh it grows and, in the telling. <laughs> yeah. Uh and so by the time I got done with the third book I'm like okay I think that if I can write book 4 at 100,000 words I should finish the story. <laughs> so uh so maybe someday I'll be able to do it. But after that, uh, uh, Terra Nova, I had to uh, Richard outline that book. Well, we outlined it together, but he, we outlined the the story idea, and then he wrote the expanded outline, and that was about fourteen thousand words. The the outline for the first book, and as we kind of got. More uh, accustomed to the process and knew what we were doing, that that outline became shorter. But I still write pretty significant outlines. Um, and one of the things that I like to say, that's a, an argument to pantsers or gardeners or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call them, is you know it takes away from the uh, experience and you lose some of the creativity that you do. Well, that's right. that's true, but I pants the outline. Yeah. Like I didn't outline the outline. I pantsed it. And, um, I never really bought that
0: argument. That, that seems like a weak argument to me.
2: It is. And, and you know, there, I know a writer who will write, you know, 230,000 words and then cut 70,000 words out. That's insane. That seems like a really big
0: waste of time. Yeah. You have more free time than I do.
2: Yeah. Um, and so I, I write really significant outlines that, um, that, that, go into detail with chapter and go into detail with what I want to do with the character. A lot of times those will change though. And I'll have to adjust different things that I'm doing. Um, I'll have to shift it specifically in the, in the webinized outline that I'm working on right now, or that I'm working off of right now. There are things in a chapter that I had to highlight and move to a different chapter because in the narrative, as I'm writing the chapter, I'm like, that doesn't exactly fit here. I'm going to have to move it somewhere else. And, so my outlines are beginning to end. I know exactly what's going to happen. I know where the turn points are going to happen. I know how it's going to end. And I know all of the, the stuff in between, but they're also very fluid. And so I'm not, I I, I learned that very quickly. A lot of people like, if I get the outline, then I'm stuck. No, that's yes. But also, no, you can go back and yeah. you can change things. So uh, I still do outline pretty significantly.
0: Um, A couple of years ago, I don't remember when exactly, but you and I did a podcast and you made an offhand comment uh, that has stuck with me and has Uh changed the way I think about things. Uh, You said everyone outlines. Some people do it before they write. Some people take the pile of stuff that they've written and then they outline and put it all together. And, And honestly, that changed the way I think about story structure and and about. um the your involvement in arranging the story that everybody right. does it. It's just, are you going to do it ahead of time or are you going to do it after the fact? And um, I think the consensus is to to do as much of it ahead of time as you can, especially if you're uh, a writer with a um, uh, with a production schedule. That well, seems and, to work better
2: one hundred percent. And and one of the big reasons I outline is I know uh approximately how many words my novels need to be uh, and i aim for at least 100,000 words and i like to be between 100 and 120,000 words for a novel i also know that i like to average 2,000 words a chapter so if i can outline you know 50 chapters I know that I'm going to be close to that 150,000 mark or 100,000 100, mark. And if I, you know, if I do 52, 53 chapters, I know I'm going to be slightly over or slightly under. I also know that some of my chapters are 700 words, but some chapters are like 3,000 words. So like if I can look at the story and say I'm at 47 chapters, I can like okay. Do I need a pad? Do I need to do? Can I? Do I have space to fit in a subplot somewhere? Um, I can look at that structure, like you're mentioning, and say okay. I know what else I can do with that book, or do I need to? For instance, in the last tranquility book I was, I wrote uh, there was a uh, a POV that I completely cut out um, because in the writing process where I had planned you know 60 chapters um i got to the point where i was like i really don't need all of this other stuff i can tell the things that i'm telling in those chapters i can use or put in other pov chapters and not need all this other stuff and i cut like 20,000 words out because i didn't need them
0: yeah I'm sorry.
2: I was reading this comment you put. Yeah,
0: yeah. Chris Wilson said, I tried that before with a series. No outline, just a general idea. Didn't work. I think a basic outline, at least, is pretty much a necessity to get it done without going crazy. Yeah. Especially if you're going to write more than one book, you it, it definitely helps to know where you're going. Well, and I, like,
2: I'll, I'll use Edge of Valor as an example. Edge of Valor, it was an extremely complex book that I, I, I would not have been able to write just by the seat of my pants. I had yeah. because that, that book deals with uh, multiple firsthand accounts of a single incident, but those accounts are wrong and the characters are lying. So I had to know the truth. I had to know what actually happened, but then I had to know how they would describe the lie. How, why would they do these different things? I had to put all that together for five POVs. And so, and then I had to cross connect all of the POVs to make sure that I wasn't repeating incidents because I didn't want to be repetitive in the story. Right. But I also didn't want to give anything away from any of the other POVs. And I, would not one? I, I mean, that outline changed. I think six times before I finally set on. This is what's happening, and uh, yeah, I, but I think you know basic outlining. You know, Steve and I, uh, Steve buller and I, talk about writing a lot, and we both kind of had the same uh, yeah. outlook on writing. You have a basic, say you have a a one sentence line per chapter this is what's going to happen in that chapter then i go back and i write three or four paragraphs of where it's at what are they doing what are they going to talk about uh are they going to do something is there a fight and then i go back in and after that add more action add some dialogue and then i go back out of that flush the dialogue out expand it cut out and so it's it's an outline but it's also the beginning of like a massive snowflake method of writing the novel right. and i can sit down and write an outline in two or three days. Sometimes I've done it in a day. I I just outlined a fantasy novel uh, a couple of months ago that would have, if I wrote the whole thing, it'd probably be around 160, 170,000 words. I did that in a day and a half. And it was literally just chapter blank. This is what happens. Chapter blank. This is what happens. And you're telling yourself the story and then you can go back in and
0: show it after the fact great point um, I, you have made um, a place for yourself in in science fiction and military sci-fi specifically yeah um, I know that that's not all that you're passionate about um, you and I and and, and Steve Bowyer, um, we all love fantasy stories yeah. I, I love I, I grew up on Tolkien and and Terry Brooks and and um, and all of that Um I'm not very good at writing fantasy. Uh, and I, I know that you have a desire to to write fantasy stories. And we're such big fantasy nerds that, that we started a short-lived podcast. Oh, the shortest-lived a, podcast in the history a, of podcasts. About a fantasy series that will go unnamed and it wound up just me you and steve talking about how much we hated this freaking series mm-hmm. and couldn't wait that couldn't believe we had to go 13 books deep in this and we just gave up do uh I, do you still want to write fantasy is, Absolutely. Is that, something I, that you hope to, to do one day
2: i so i i love mill sci-fi i write i love writing sci-fi i love what you can do with sci-fi yeah um but my passion is in fantasy. Um, one of my favorite authors is Brandon Sanderson, Larry Korea. I, I have not read the Monster Hunter Files or the whatever it is called from Larry Korea. I think I started it. I'm like one or yeah. two chapters into the first one. But I absolutely love his uh, uh, Forgot- Son of the Forgotten, Saga of the Forgotten Warrior series. Right. Absolutely love it. I got to talk to him in uh, Las Vegas last year at 20 Books. And I was, uh, I was hanging out at the Bain booth with uh, Tony and David and Larry. And I said, David, I got, or Larry, I got to ask you, I've got a theory about what you're doing in the story. Can I ask you about it? You don't have to tell me if I'm right, but can I ask you about it? Yeah. And I told him, and he was like, You're super close. The only person that has got it 100% correct was Jim Butcher. And uh, oh, I really? said, I said, all right, okay. Um, I love those books. Uh, Brandon Sanderson is by far my favorite author of all time in fantasy. Um, I love The Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, anything fantasy. I started reading um, uh, Rob Hayes, Rob J. Hayes, uh, The Heresy Within. I think um, Joe Abercrombie does Grib Dark. Um, my uh, fantasy is fantastic. I love fantasy, and I'm one hundred percent the thing that attracts me to fantasy is the use of language and prose that is not poetic but almost poetic in yeah. the way that you can present your story and the longer that i am an author i used to not like dialogue i used to not like kind of an introspective conversation or even just a an introspective moment and that's why i write action packed books predominantly but the more that i write the more that i i really just want to write two characters sitting across from each other having a conversation and having that tension build the story um like if you've i'm sure you've read uh, a song of ice and fire there's oh, yeah. there is action in those books but a lot of that tension comes from interpersonal interactions and conversations that you're like I know that that person's lying. The other person doesn't know that that person's lying. The other person's going to stab that guy in the back. Um, (laughs) I like that kind of tension and I like that kind of narrative drive. And that's what I want to do. I've, I've, I've planned a trilogy and I've planned a standalone novel in the universe. Um, I've written a couple of short stories in the universe. I absolutely love this world that I've created and I'm working on it here and there. Um, Like I said, I've got to write the stuff that puts the food on the table first. Um, But uh, hopefully someday soon, maybe next year, I will be able to dive into those books and uh, everybody that's read them so far has absolutely loved what I've done with uh, prose and character. And um, so hopefully I'll be able to have one of those on the bookshelf soon.
0: You, you said earlier that um, where you really thrive and in, in military sci-fi especially is um, characters that that get down to business and mm-hmm. not so much internal conflict. Right. Um, a lot of fantasy is internal conflict. There's right. there's usually a um, a big journey uh, the, a a physical journey, but there's a lot of emotional. Um, metaphorical journey that's also happening. That's really kind of a contrast between the two. Um, How do you see your writing style like that you said is paying the bills um, versus the writing style that that is almost needed uh, to operate in the fantasy? How do you how do you see, you know, taking readers that you've established over here and bringing them over to this other style? Do, Do you have a plan?
2: Well, yeah, the plan is, uh, I hope they do, but I, I, I know for a fact that a lot of them will not bridge. Um, uh, and that's okay for me. Um, yeah. uh, I, I, I hopefully am writing this for a different market, um, um, but it's... The, the thing about my writing in Mill Sci-Fi is that my writing is extremely tight in that, you know, I don't go into a lot of uh, family dynamics or there's not there's not really any love stories or, yeah. um, you know, there's friendships. I, I dive into um, camaraderie, um, the, the esprit de corps that you get in a military setting. Like those are the things that the readers of those books want, um, you know, learning about, you know, interpersonal relationship with parents or siblings or whatever, those things aren't a part of the books that I write, but I think those are interesting things to explore. And uh, I think in the genre of epic fantasy, that is what people expect in those type of books. Um, and that's something that I want to get more into. I want to talk about, you know, I want to explore relationships. um that are more than just standing next to your brother on a firing line, shooting at the enemy. Um, I want to explore, um, you know, miscommunications. I want to explore the things that as humans we deal with on a daily basis. Um, and, and look at how that can change, characters' responses and characters' interactions with people on a, on a deeper level, not a boring level, but on a deeper yeah. level than you typically get in a mill sci-fi novel. Um, and and I, I've set up some things in this book. I mean, the, the overarching theme of these books is basically what happens to a world or a civilization where people believe one thing because that's always been the thing that they've believed and that their belief is kind of self uh, reinforcing. Um, When that belief is wrong, what happens like when it's actually wrong, not that like subjectively you're believing the wrong thing, but if it's wrong, how does that affect the world? How does that affect, you know, everything in it? Uh, If, if, because, you know, people are dumb you know that i mean we're <laughs> stupid uh and we will latch on to something and go this is the truth 100 i believe it and it might not be yeah uh you know and sometimes that's subjective but a lot of times it's objective and yeah. and uh, and there are still people that are like now the sky's black no you're wrong no earth is flat or whatever it is you know
0: so you're not a flat earther
2: no no <laughs> no what really drives me nuts about the like i've seen a meme where they're they're making fun of flat earthers and it's it's the uh, a picture of the solar system and every single planet is round except for earth that is a square
0: (laughs) flame and i'm like come on guys come come on come on come on oh man yeah uh josh this hour went extremely fast um what what are you working on right now uh right um
2: first of all it did holy crap like I feel like we just started talking I know. um I'm working on so I just finished up Tranquility 3 it's it, with uh Athon's editors right now uh I have absolutely no idea when I'm going to get that back um and I'm working on uh Weaponized uh Fury which is the first book in the Weaponized series um I actually I should have talked about this earlier. I, I outlined this book beginning to end, uh, three weeks ago, I realized the book was not working and that I was, um, oh, no. I was promising something in the first book that I was not going to fulfill in the second and third book. Um, because what I wanted to tell is a, the story that I wanted to tell is kind of a, 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 black ops uh, CIA type ish ground branch ish story of course it's far future. I'm just using that as reference. Yeah. Um, But I was not delivering that in the first book and I was, you know, the first book I'd planned out to be this gladiatorial iron man type fight to the death. And there's going to be a whole bunch of, you know, dead aliens and all that stuff in this captured slave ship or whatever. And then in the second book, they were going to go off and do all this black ops stuff. And I'm like, "Ah, that's not what I'm doing in the first book." If people read the first book and like it, they're going to get to the second book and go, "This is two completely different things. This is not what I signed up for." And so I spent about three days completely reworking my outline and cut about forty thousand words. And now I'm 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 not starting over, but I'm it's pretty damn close. Are uh are you are you going back and 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 fixing book one. So book one, uh, before I figured out that I was doing it wrong, I was at about 75,000 words um, out of about 110. So I had about 40,000 words left to write in the original outline. Um, And what I did, you know, I'll talk about it. You're, you're my friend. Uh, So I had, I had planned there, uh, this, It was like Gladiator meets Iron Man in space was the theme of this book. And so this this, uh, special forces guy gets captured, gets put into slavery, gets sold to this arena, fights in some games, gets some notoriety, uh, kills everybody, gets free. And then in the second book, they go off and they do all these Black Ops stuff. And what I realized in about the 70,000 word mark is that I'm having all these fights, but we already know that he's a really good fighter. Like, we already know he's a badass. Like, we've yeah. seen this already. I've done it, you know, three or four scenes, sections of showing the reader that this guy can fight and he can lead people and he's a really good person. Having three or four more fights isn't going to do that. Like, they don't, we don't need that. And to get to where I wanted to be in book two, how do I get that? I'm going to have to have a time jump somewhere between books or whatever. And so what I decided was I can cut out all these other fights. I had them fighting like these dragons, which were like a a callback to like lions and bears in the arena and the Coliseum back in, you know, but then I realized I really didn't need it because I've already established that he's a really good fighter. So what I went back and did is I, I decided to shrink the portion that he's a slave as a gladiator. I'm I'm condensing all that into about 45,000 words. And cutting out all the rest of it um and then adding in another plot line uh to take it back to the full length again um and that's what i'm working on now i think i'm at about 60,000 words again um and um so I, I hopefully will have the first draft done uh probably middle of august um And we're going to be, I got to finish two and three before we release. And we're going to do the, you know, the rapid release thing. Speaking of uh, indie traditions, the the rapid (laughs) release thing. So um, once I get those books done, they'll be out.
0: I have to ask you this, when you have a story that's not working and you've Mm -hmm. got 30,000 words that you've written um, that that you don't need to use that, that are, you know, and you need to cut those out. Do those words ever get reused somewhere or do you just use that as this was me over familiarizing myself with the world and and that information will wind up in the story somehow, but maybe it's just in in my background knowledge of the world or something that I pull from? Or do you ever recycle those words and say, you know what, this would work really well over in this story and, and you know, that. Are those lost words or do you consider them a benefit of in, in some way?
2: Uh, in this specific case, they're just gone. Um, there's not there. I don't foresee any circumstance that I could reuse them uh, or yeah. tweak them in a certain way, just because of how specific they are to this one book. Right. Um, I, you know, for me, as an author, I'm always trying to improve. So every time I write, I... I uh, am trying to improve my craft, and every time I w- write, I'm working on that. So, the you know the forty thousand words I wrote, I uh, they're good words, um, but they're just not needed. And I think that goes back to the quantity over quality. I'm I am one hundred percent sure that there are writers out there that will get you know, all the way through a story realized they didn't need these 40,000 words, but they're like, ah, screw it. I wrote the words. I like them. I'm going to leave them in the book because I like them and they don't do anything for your story and they might end up hurting your story. And it's okay to delete words. Like, I think we get on this deal where we're, we're so precious about our words and our time spent on a project that, you know, if I'm I'm losing whatever, whatever, then I'll I'm losing a thousand dollars because of the time spin and this. Sometimes you just got to hit delete, man. Sometimes you just got to hit delete and start over or um, go on a different direction. That's what I mean. Like, yeah, I outlined, but sometimes that outline work ends up not working and you've got to do something different and you've got to be okay with deleting words. I mean, it, it. I am, I've written enough where I, I just, I'm not beholden, beholden to my words. I'm not that precious. I'm like, nah, that sucks. Delete.
0: Right. Well, and and I think some people have the erroneous uh, idea that because you outline that that is set in stone, that that is a foundation that's been laid that that never can be adjusted. But sometimes, as you have just described, you get in the middle of the writing and you realize that no amount of planning ahead of time could have foreseen where this was going to end up. And you just have to go back and re-architect things. 100 percent. And that's the thing.
2: I, I think that outlining so you understand where you're going, like even just from section to section where you're like, I am here. I know I have to be here. Let's write that. But if you get there and then the next section is eh, maybe it'd be better if we go over here then just adjust on the fly and go over there. And, um, and you know, sometimes I've, I mean, I know for a fact that I've got 14,000 words of outline that I'm just like, you're gone by uh, you know, yeah. and you just don't, you don't get that back. And it's all, you know, it's all, I don't know what they say that 10,000 hours before you become a pressure. I don't really ascribe to that. I think that's a super long time. I don't know how many years that is, but there's a long time. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about a full-time job, that's what five years of full-time yeah. job before you be. And uh, you know, five years doesn't sound like a long time, but it's a pretty long time, especially in our industry. And there's people that write, you know, Ten novels a year, so right. uh, Yeah, I exactly. I am. I'm not scared of deleting at all.
0: Yeah, I like the concept of the the more work you put in, the more of an expert you become. Sure, like I get that, but yeah, to I've I've always thought the ten thousand hours was a little arbitrary. And, well, look how many people
2: write their first book, and it just goes, bing, like Andy Weir, you know, exactly. in The Martian. It's it's an outlier, right? You can't use this as an example. And I'm sure that he wrote other stuff before that. But uh, yeah. did he? do you think he wrote for 10,000 hours while he was in NASA, whatever he is, before he yeah. wrote The Martian? You know what I mean?
0: He was an outlier and a pretty great outlier at that. I'll yeah. give you that. I'll yeah. give you that. So, Josh, what uh, if people are just discovering you today and never – uh, gotten into josh hayes writing before where would you point them uh, i've got a website i
2: am horrible about updating it uh, <laughs> uh i was just thinking the other day man i should just do away with the website i don't do anything with it <laughs> um josh hayes is my website um i have a sub stack that i've made two posts on and i don't even know what the url is um Mostly, I'm on Facebook. I, I have a Twitter account, but I very rarely dive into the cesspool. Um, and I'm on Instagram as well. I think if you just Google or Facebook Josh Hayes, I'm I'm one of the only ones that comes up. Or Josh Hayes author. If you Google Josh Hayes, make sure that you put in the author because if you don't put in the author, then you get this like really dumb Dirk. By I'm not saying I'm just kidding. He's a he's a uh, motocross guy. Rides motorcycles. And apparently he thinks he's famous, famouser than me, more famous, famouser than me, because he's the only one that comes up when you Google just Josh Hayes, period, Uh, which I think is just that he's, he's, you know, he's monopolizing on the name and, and look, I'm cool too. I think I should be on the front page of Google just as Josh Hayes,
0: but whatever. I agree. Or, or go to Amazon and search for, for Josh Hayes. You could do that too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the only one on there. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Keep the motocross guys off of Amazon. Yeah. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for joining me. And when does, if people want to catch Keystroke Medium live, when do you guys do that? Uh, Right now we're doing Mondays at 2 p.m. Central
2: is our live time. If you go to keystrokemedium.com, that website is kept up. Uh, uh, You can find a list of all our, our links to all of our shows i think we have like 600 shows on youtube um a whole bunch of authors dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews with authors um we have our own coffee now you can buy coffee if you need coffee um or facebook uh our facebook group is super active and uh youtube is youtube.com slash keystroke medium
0: excellent we'll send everyone over to see you josh thank you so much for joining me today
2: Thanks for having me back on, man. I'll have to do this sooner than later.
0: Absolutely.